All right, so this is week four, if you remember, in our uh, Sola series. Uh, there will be five of them. That's another thing that I need to, to clarify is some of you ladies uh, are like, oh, I don't want to miss the last week. Like, you're, some of you, uh, be honest, you're on the fence about whether you actually want to go to the women's retreat because you're so looking forward to my sermon next week, right? No. All right. I, uh, anyhow, so we're not going to do the, the fifth uh, sermon in this series next week. Um, we're gonna, I'm going to do something else next week, and then we'll finish up the series the following week. So um, we live, you and I, as a group of people and as a generation, live during a time of unparalleled uh, confusion when it comes to um, spiritual things, specifically when it comes to truth. The idea of truth today is, um, well, it's everywhere and it's nowhere, right? I mean, is that a decent way of describing it? Like, the, the idea of absolute truth is under attack during our generation right now like, like it's never been before. I don't think in history. It's, it's a very unique time that we live in in that regard. Um, so three weeks ago we started, actually it was four weeks ago, we started this series with uh, Sola Scriptura, where we actually said that this is, uh, the, the Word of God is the ultimate authority. Now, in the culture that we live in today, that's a bold statement. I mean, that's a bold statement at any time, but especially in our culture today, that's a bold statement. So then uh, the week after that, we uh, talked about sola fide, or faith alone. Uh, so scripture alone, faith alone, and we talked about the fact that we, like, there's nothing outside of our faith that saves us. And then last week, we talked about grace alone, and talked about the idea that salvation comes through grace alone, and we talked about this, the tension that exists there between uh, faith alone and grace alone, that, wait, which one is it? And we, so we, taught, we went to Ephesians chapter 2 and talked about the fact that, well, it's both, um, but they work in succession. And so um, a lot of that tension, I think, is solved this week as we talk about Christ alone or solus Christus. Um, so when we think about uh, faith alone and grace alone, and we, and we, and we think about Christ alone, it, it, it solves that tension. Here's how. Uh, we, Christ is the means of our grace, right? The grace that we receive from God for salvation. Now, when we talk about grace, we didn't get into this a whole lot last week, but when we talk about grace, we can talk about um, a lot of different things. But when we talk about this, this sola, grace alone, we're talking about we're about talking about um, saving grace. We're talking about salvation. So I'm not talking about the, the grace that God gives you to breathe, right? That's the grace of God allows you to breathe. The grace of God allows us to live. That's grace. That's what we would refer to as common grace. So saving grace is what we're talking about here. So Christ is the means of our saving grace. He's also the means of our common grace, right? Because uh, John chapter 1 tells us that all things that were made are made through and sustained by him. So Christ is the means of our common grace, but what we're speaking to here, Christ is the means of our saving grace, and Christ is the object of our faith, right? So we talk about grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, all these things come together perfectly. Christ is the means of our grace and the object of our faith. Does that does that kind of solve? Like, maybe this wasn't a problem for you guys in your heads, but I always just kind of like, wait, how does it actually work? 
I was the kid in, in, when I was younger that I was always taking things apart. And I have an eight-year-old now that wants to take everything apart. He gets a new drone for Christmas. Two weeks later, he's disassembling it because he wants to look at the insides. And I'm like, dude, you will not be able to put it back together. He doesn't even care. He just wants to see how it works. Christ is the means of our grace and the object of our faith. So, it solves that tension. Now, what we're going to talk about today in regards to solus Christus or Christ alone, we're going to talk about two things when it, when it comes to Jesus. We're going to talk about uh, the exclusivity of Jesus and the sufficiency of Jesus. Right? So this idea that Christ alone saves is exclusive. And again, in the world that we live in, in the culture that we live in, that's a dangerous thing to say if you want to be popular or if you want people uh, outside of this room to like you. It's not a popular notion. So this idea that Christ is exclusive and he is sufficient. So those are the two things, kind of the two areas where we're going to be focusing today. Christ alone emphasizes that the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not only necessary for salvation, but sufficient to save to the uttermost. That no amount of human works or merit can contribute to Christ's finished priestly work. Christ's all-sufficiency means by implication that we are insufficient of ourselves. 2 Corinthians 3.5 says that not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. This is what it means when we say Christ alone. Christ is exclusive and he is sufficient. Luther said, I must listen to the gospel for it tells me not what I must do, but what Christ Jesus, the Son of God, has done for me. John Calvin said, Christ stepped in, took the punishment upon himself and bore the judgment due to sinners with his own blood, he expiated the sin. He took away the sin which made them enemies of God and thereby satisfied him. We look to Christ alone for divine favor and fatherly love. Hence, Christ is called the King of Peace in Isaiah chapter 9, and he is called our peace in Ephesians chapter 2. Because he quiets all agitations of conscience. Isn't that amazing? Like, if we just stop and think about that sentence for just a second. He quiets all agitations of conscience. That's amazing. That's amazing. If we ask the means, we must come to the sacrifice by which God has been appeased. For anyone, okay, this is, this is a really, really, really huge statement. I don't want us to get it. For anyone unconvinced that God is appeased by that one atonement in which Christ endured, his wrath will never cease to tremble. In short, we must seek peace for ourselves solely in the anguish of Christ our Redeemer. If we do not find our peace in Jesus, we will not find it. Period. This is what it means when we say Christ alone. So uh, another way of saying what, what I started with, the fact that like the culture that we live in, we live in a postmodern age, right? It is completely postmodern. Um, if like some of us in this room are old enough to remember a time in our culture and in our country uh, 
when there was a large consensus, there was a majority consensus about right and wrong, for the most part, right? Even people that didn't call themselves, call themselves Christians, there was a consensus about right and wrong. And we can have, like, I mean, I'll be honest, there are a lot of ways in which that consensus going away has actually helpful um, because it has removed a lot of um, false faith and, uh, and empty religion from our culture that I think was actually preventing people from seeing Jesus. But one of the things that has gone away as that consensus has been removed, because it has been removed, and what I mean by that is that, that 50 years ago, there were a lot of things that were done in our culture, but they were done in secret. They were, they were reserved to the dark corners of our culture. And today, those things are done in broad daylight. They are encouraged and celebrated. I'm not going to get into any specifics. I don't think I need to. I could list off a dozen different things that we look around in our culture and see in broad daylight that 50 years ago, or even 30 years ago, were reserved to dark corners. Why? Because there was a majority consensus about the fact that those things were wrong. Even if we were doing them, we knew that they were wrong. And that, that, that consensus has been removed. This idea of right and wrong, truth, and absolute truth, has been removed. And so this idea that Christ is exclusive is incredibly countercultural and dangerous. Increasingly so, right? This is, I mean, this is a, a weird thing to say today. Uh, and so what we're going to do right now is I'm just going to read off some claims the Bible makes about Christ's exclusivity, all right? While I try not to get lost. This is why I put page numbers on them. Number one, he is the Son of God. John 3.16, he is the only Son of God. John 3.16 says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He is the only Son. There is no other. He is the only name, Acts 4.12. And there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be Saved. Now, my small group, uh, we had a really interesting conversa- running conversation over several weeks about the idea of unreached peoples and the name of Jesus and h- how that works. Like if I never, if, if a missionary never comes to my village deep in the Amazon jungle and says, you need to believe in Jesus, can I be saved? So the first thing we need to understand is this idea behind a name. What is a name? A name is an identity. Right? So uh, is, it, is it possible for God, uh, through Jesus, to reveal himself to someone in the deepest, darkest jungle without a human saying to them, Jesus Christ? Of course it is. Absolutely. So this idea behind Jesus' name doesn't mean J-E-S-U-S, because you could also talk about different languages, right? But what this means is that through Jesus and Jesus alone, we are saved. So now we can go, oh, that's kind of sticky, right? Yeah, it is. It gets a little sticky because the Holy Spirit doesn't always operate the way we want him to operate. But the fact remains that there are parameters and there is ultimate truth given in Scripture about Christ by which we are saved through faith, right? All these five solas work together. We saw that last week. 
They never work apart from each other. He is the only name. He is the only way. John 14, 6 says that Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Man, if there is a more uh, blatant statement of the exclusivity of Christ, I can't think of it. There is no other way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the reason this claim, I think, is more blatantly exclusive than the others is that this is Jesus making this statement about himself. This isn't somebody else saying this about Jesus. This is Je- these are Jesus' own words. He's saying, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. That's unbelievably exclusive. And Jesus is claiming that title for himself. He is the only mediator between God and man. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, and men, the man, Jesus Christ. The London Baptist Confession actually says this. It says the office of mediator between God and man is proper only to Christ who is the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God. And may not be either in whole or any part thereof transferred from him to any other. Just him. No one else. And it can't be transferred from him to anyone else. It's always Christ. It always has been Christ. It always will be Christ. He's the only sacrifice for sin. Hebrews Chapter 10, but when Christ had offered for all a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For us to make these claims that we believe from Scripture about Christ is, um, in a lot of ways, social suicide. Like this can cost you your job your career, your social status, your reputation. Uh, in fact, this week, I thought, it was, I, didn't, I thought it was more than ironic that this week, anybody see the comments that uh, that lady on The View made? Anybody see that? I don't remember her name. There's this lady on The View, the really loud one. I think they're all really loud, right? Um, she said that Mike Pence, our vice president, was mentally ill. Do you know why she said he was mentally ill? Not because he's pro-life, not because he wants to cut taxes, like, this, is, this wasn't a political thing, right? She said he was mentally ill because he believed in Jesus Christ. She said, that's mental illness. I quote, that's mental illness. This is where we're headed, you guys. Like, this is, this is we are radically coming to the point where this is no longer a, oh, yeah, this, you know, this, we, are, we are radically moving to the point where where you and I, and in our faith in Jesus Christ, are going to be socially, politically, uh, economically pushed to the fringes. And all of a sudden, our faith is going to cost a little bit more. Because right now, it's, you know, it might cost you a friend or two. But we are radi- radically moving to the point where uh, it's going to start costing a little bit more than that precisely because we make these exclusive claims about Jesus, about who he is, and about what he has done. Now, 
you and I have no right to change any of these things, any of these statements that Scripture makes about Christ or that Christ makes about himself. You and I have no right to change any of these things. And this is another one of the temptations that we have in our Christian faith is that um, we try to water it down. But here's the problem. When we water down what Scripture says about Christ and what Christ says about himself, we are no longer talking about Christ. We're talking about a figment of our imagination, something that we're conjuring up that does not exist. A couple weeks ago, I was at the house, and a couple Mormon guys came to the door. And so I opened the door, had a nice, real quick chat with them, and then uh, they left. And I shut the door, and I went back, and one of my kids asked me, why didn't you tell them? Because they asked if they could share with me about Jesus Christ. And one of my kids asked me, why didn't you tell them that you knew Jesus? And I said, because the Jesus they believe in and the Jesus I believe in are not the same thing. It's not the same. So when somebody says, well, Mormons believe in Jesus, no, they don't. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's not. It's not the same person. It's not Jesus Christ. It's not the same. It's like when, if I were to describe to you my uh, blonde-haired, blue-eyed wife. It's not Shannon, right? As much as I might want to believe it in my head, which I don't, it's not her. I just, all of a sudden, I was like, I might want to clarify here, right? <laughs> it's not her. So when we have these ideas in our head about who Jesus is, and then we look at the Bible and we go, wait a second, it's different. We have to, we have to, we have to come to grips with that. And anytime we want to water it down to make somebody like him more, they're not liking the God of the Bible. He is exclusive in who he is, and we cannot misrepresent him in any way. Now, um, this is, uh, according to a lot of people, the height of intolerance, right? This is part of the reason that Christianity has such a bad name these days, because we're intolerant. But here's the problem. Intolerance is not necessarily a bad thing, right? Anybody travel? You guys travel sometimes, right? So when I get on an airplane that's going to go, uh, we were flying home from Hawaii uh, this last fall, and we were flying home. It took us like seven and a half hours to get there and like six to come home. That's how amazingly powerful the winds are up there. So on the way back, we're flying with the wind, and so we're going like seven, like you always think of a commercial airliners, and you think, oh, yeah, they've traveled this fast. We're doing like 700 miles an hour, 750, I think, with the tailwind. Absolutely nuts, right? So when I, got, when I get on an airplane, a hollow metal tube that's pressurized, it's going to be 35,000 feet in the air going 750 miles an hour. I'm really hoping that the mechanics were intolerant of imperfections because my life depends on it, Right? If I'm going to go in for surgery, uh, a pastor friend of mine had heart surgery a couple years ago, like major heart surgery, and what, here's what they did. Absolutely blew my mind. They put him under, they put him on the table, they open up his chest, they hook him up to a bunch of machines, they pull his heart out of his chest, like out. 
It's not like, you know, the movies where it's like they're going to stick some things down in there. Like they take his heart out, like cut everything off, pull it out, put it on a table over here. They put him on an ice, right? They shove him in a cooler. Then they operate on his heart and they put it back in. And then they turn him back on. I don't know how it works, (laughs) right? Shock him or something. I don't know. But if I'm going, like, I asked him, like, are you nervous? He was like, heck yeah, I'm nervous. He's really hoping that those surgeons are absolutely intolerant of any contaminant in that room or anything that might screw that up because somebody's life depends on it. This is what we're talking about. When we're talking about the exclusivity of Christ, we're talking about an intolerance who's like that millions and millions and millions of people's lives depend on it. It's a life and death issue. And so our temptation to like, oh, make it feel a little bit better to people, like, like at any point, am I going to go, oh, hey, like to that mechanic who made a mistake? It's cool, man. It's cool. Like, you know, you just don't really want to, you just don't really want to go there, right? Like it's uncomfortable. No, you're done, right? You might be in jail. Like absolute intolerance. And we're okay with that. But when it comes to Christ, all of a sudden, like, hey, you know, don't push that on me. While people are dying in droves to spend eternity apart from him. And we want to make them feel better. He is absolutely exclusive. Back to Matthew 16. Simon Peter, right? Jesus asked this question of them, and Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Period. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. By the way, that claim right there is why Jesus died. That's why he was killed. Because of this claim. But then what did Jesus say? Then this is, this is really important for us to understand. Jesus said, on, like, He said, blessed are you, Peter, or Simon. And then he changed his name. He said, now you are Peter. On this rock, I will build my church. So what's he saying? Like, this is a debate in the church. Was he talking about building his rock on Peter? And so, like, when you look at this passage, here's what Jesus is saying. When he says, on this rock, I will build my church, he's talking about Peter's confession about who he is. Right? Right? So the foundation of the church is this. That he is the Christ, the son of the living God. The foundation that we have as a church and the church as a whole has is this. That Christ, that, he, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Our confession about Christ's exclusivity and his sufficiency to save people from their sins is the foundation of the church. It does not get any more bedrock than that. That's it. That's the, that's the foundation that everything else that we believe rests on. And if so if anything else that we believe doesn't rest on that, we throw it away. Because it's not only unhelpful, but it's probably destructive. That's it. That's the foundation. So here's a few things um, that, that historically and today I think that we get caught up on um, 
we'll call them counterfeits, all right? Christ plus the church. Now, none of this stuff actually gets, uh, well, some of it does. Most of these things don't actually get verbalized this way. Nobody's going to go, no, nobody's going to say, hey, uh, you need to believe in Jesus and you need to go to church in order to be saved. But that's like, that's why a lot of people go to church. Because they have to be good Christians. Completely missing the point of what we're doing here. So what we're essentially believing is that, yeah, we need Christ, but that's not, he's not enough. He's not sufficient to save. I also have to do my part in order to be saved. So then historically, uh, our second one is this, Christ plus Mary or the saints. Right? Again, this, this whole idea of Solus Christus came out of the Reformation, which was a, uh, a division in the Catholic Church. And so part of the reason Christ alone was one of their bedrock uh, things that they came out of the Reformation with was because the Catholic Church had started to teach that, yeah, you have Jesus, but you also have to pray to Mary, and you have all these saints that you need to pray for. And it all became so muddled. And so the Reformers went back and said, no, 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 no. It's Jesus alone by which we are saved. Right? That's why uh, we just learned that he is our mediator. We need no other mediator. Christ alone does that. The third one is, uh, and this is the big one for us, Christ plus good works of any kind. Now, we think of this as um, kind of in our Christian circles, like, right? We, um, again, we don't say this out loud, but that we kind of functionally believe this. Because uh, if we functionally believed that Christ was sufficient and exclusive in saving us, then we wouldn't be filled, so filled with shame when we fall short. Right? There's a difference, right? We understand the difference between conviction and shame. They're two different things. Not even close. Like conviction draws me to, to Jesus. Shame um, is why uh, Adam and Eve... Uh, sewed fig leaves for themselves to hide their nakedness, to hide their shame. They hid from Jesus. So conviction brings us to him. Shame takes us away. So every time that we feel shame over our sin, that should be a trigger for us. Oh, this isn't a, this isn't a works issue. This is a belief issue. There's something wrong with my heart right now in what I'm believing about Jesus and about myself. Because if I believe that Christ is sufficient to save me, then the work is done. It's done. In my house, we say D-U-N, done. Right? I understand that's not the correct spelling, so, yeah. But here's the other side of this whole Christ plus works thing that we don't talk about as much. Uh, this gets taken outside of the church and gets mixed into this whole relativism, like no truth thing. Here's kind of how it works. Um, you don't have to, like, yeah, we have to believe in Jesus, but it's, it's really all about just feeding the poor. And so we go to Africa, and we do things, and we go to third world countries, and we do this and we that, and we feel good about ourselves, right? Because we're doing, I mean, we're following Jesus, thinking that somehow that's adding to what Christ has done as though he needed our help. 
and it goes farther and farther and farther down that road. Like the idea, like Jesus, you know, don't judge. Jesus is just full of grace. He doesn't want to judge anybody. That's not Jesus, right? That's not the Jesus that when he returns, the book of Revelation tells us that, that, that there are going to be people on this earth that are going to beg the mountains to fall on them so that they can hide from him. Jesus just, you know, Jesus just loves people. That's not Jesus. We just, you know, it's, oh, it's good people. We just do this and we do that. Like Jesus, like I believe in Jesus and Jesus wants me to, to not judge people and to just love people. Nope. Yes, Jesus wants you to love people. But one of the most loving things that you can do for them is to tell them that they need him and that without him, they are lost. That's love. Like we understand that, right? Like there's a difference between um, not wanting to offend someone and loving them. If I have uh, a, like a six-inch piece of glass sticking out of my neck, like it's loving for you to like hurt me a little bit by pulling it out. Is that comfortable for me? Like, hey, man, I wanted that there. Come on, dude. Like we have to understand what is loving and what is not loving. That's part of this. We believe in Christ and in Christ alone. Christ and Christ alone. Jesus doesn't play some part of our salvation. He plays all of it. Christ alone, right? Here's the problem. The idea that Jesus saves and that, 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 that there's things for us to do, don't, like they're opposing. There's no way for them to fit together. That's, a puzzle, that's two puzzle pieces that don't go together. In fact, they're not even in the same puzzle. You ever tried doing that, by the way? Like you put together this massive puzzle and there's just one piece that you can't find? Oh yeah, it doesn't go to this puzzle, right? One of these things is not like the other. These two things do not go together at all. James Boyce said this one time, Solus Christus means that Jesus has done it all so that now no merit on the part of man, no merit of the saints, no work of ours performed either here or in purgatory can add to the completed saving work. In fact, any attempt to add to it is a perversion of the gospel, indeed no gospel at all. As soon as we start to add to Christ's work, like Paul said this, we talked about this last week, as soon as we start to add to Christ's work, Paul actually says that Christ is of no benefit to us. Either you save yourself or you trust in him. One or the other. Can't be both. One of, the, one of the big statements, theological statements made about Christ is that he is preeminent. He is first. He is first and he is exclusive. There is no other way. Just him. So what are the implications of this, right? One of the implications that we've just seen is that we can come directly to him. We need no other mediator because he is our mediator. So we now have access to the throne room of God in confidence. Again, think about this for a minute. 
I have access to the throne room of the creator of the universe because of the work of Jesus. Again, this is a, a, a part of how, why this came out of the Reformation. Part of the, the way it was shaped was because um, the Catholic Church taught that, that, that you had to have these different mediators. You had to go to a priest, and the priest was your mediator. Listen to me. I am not your mediator. All right? Like, I, I, I believe in the leadership of the church, but here's the responsibility of the leadership of the church, right? Me, the elders, or any of you that are leaders in this church, here's your responsibility, to point people to Jesus, period. Period. You don't have to come through me. I'm not special. Jesus is special. All kinds of special. My, 100% of my job is to point you to him. There he is, go to him. Even if sometimes that means you leave here, I'm okay with that. Point you to Jesus because he is our mediator and we can come directly to him. The second implication of this is that when Christ died on the cross, he completed the work of salvation. This is why he cried out on the cross, it is finished. It's finished. It's finished. That statement should give you and it should give me so much hope and so much assurance that the work of salvation is done. He is sufficient, completely sufficient to do what he said he will do. Number three, saving faith is nothing less than total reliance on Christ. Total reliance on Christ. I heard someone say one time that uh, believing totally in Jesus for salvation means that if Jesus can't save me, I'm willing to go to hell. Like there's some other theological implications that I might go, well, I don't know if like, that statement really works out, but it, like, it bears weight, doesn't it? I'm willing to stake my salvation on the fact that the only way is Jesus. I will not put any faith in any other way that I might be able to save myself. It's only Jesus, and I'm putting all my chips in him. That's it. That's what it means to have total and complete faith in him as our Savior. Total reliance on Christ. No good works are going to pry open a door. Nothing's going to give us fulfillment. Nothing, like, him and him alone. My wife and I uh, started a movie the other night. I won't tell you what it is. Um, it wasn't an awful movie, but it was a story about a guy taking his son to visit colleges. And uh, as they're going to visit these different colleges, the, the husband starts to reminisce. And most of the movie is like, you're hearing the, this dad's thoughts. And he's talking to himself, and he's narrating the story, thinking about, talking about how, all the regrets that he has. He runs a nonprofit. And all of his college buddies are massively these successful business tycoons and playboys and all this different stuff. And, and throughout the movie, he's constantly like going back and forth between like, oh, yay, my son is awesome. My wife is awesome too. I regret every decision I ever made because it didn't get me this thing. 
And we ended up moving, turning the movie off halfway through because both of us were like, yeah, we know how this movie's going to end, right? He's going to get to the end of the movie and he's going to realize either he's going to um, like somehow get what he wants and ooh la la, we live happily ever after, or he's going to realize that what he wants, right, isn't that great and he already has what's great, which is uh, a wife who loves him and a great kid who might get into Harvard. And that's equally depressing, right? And so we just turned it off. Like, if he comes to that realization at the end of the movie, and like, oh, yeah, I am satisfied with this, that's equally depressing to me. Right? This is, like, as we, as we walk with Jesus more and more and more, these things become more real to us. Like, that's not a happy ending. Jesus is a happy ending. His completed work of righteousness, nothing else gets us what we ultimately want except for Jesus. Right? It was almost a story of like being, um, it's okay to not be successful. It's okay to not want more. But the problem is that we were created for more. We were created to want more. We were created to not be satisfied with what we have right now. The problem is that Jesus is the only way to get what we want to get what we were created for. He's the only way. He's the only way. Number four, when Christ saves us, we are completely saved and eternally saved. When, we, when Christ saves us, we are completely saved and eternally saved. Philippians 1.6 says that I am sure of this, that he, he who, being Jesus, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Like the work that he began in you on the cross, or if we're looking at things from his perspective in eternity past, right? Will be brought to completion when he comes back. Man, I can't wait for that. Right? If I've been dead for a thousand years, or if it's five minutes from now, doesn't matter. The work will be completed. Because he said it would, and I believe him. But I also believe that he's the only one that can do it. I cannot. So all of this, I use the statement a lot, run to the cross. Right? We run to the cross, we run to the cross, we run to the cross. This is what that means. It means that when I fail, I run to the cross. Why? Because the cross reminds me of who Jesus is and what he has done. Christ alone. When other people fail me, I run to the cross. Why? Because it reminds me of who Christ is and what he has done for me and for them. Like this is where, like the power to forgive each other, run to the cross. Because when you see the level of forgiveness that you've been given, man, it makes it so much easier to forgive other people. Like there is no, there is no situation in life where I would not say to you, mm, I don't know about this one. Run to the cross. Run to the cross. Jesus is exclusive and he is sufficient for all things. Christ and Christ alone. Amen?